The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me, ladies and gentlemen. We are in the presence of one of music's absolute treasures. Norbert Putnam is a record producer and bassist, one of the Muscle Shoals session musicians. As a bassist, he recorded with the likes of Elvis Presley, Roy Orbison, Henry Mancini. Linda Ronstadt, and Al Hurt, just to name a few. And as a record producer, he produced some of the most beloved albums of artists like Joan Baez, Dan Fogelberg, Jimmy Buffett, Brewer and Shipley, Donovan, The Flying Burrito Brothers, John Hyatt, Jesse Winchester. We could just keep on going. I can remember (laughs) when I was first starting to collect albums, which wasn't that long ago, (laughs) and... I would see the name Norbert Putnam, and it just seemed like it was just, uh, you would never ever get to speak to somebody like Norbert Putnam, but you have this book out, it's called Music Lessons, a musical memoir, I enjoyed it very much, and you're kind enough to make the time to join us here. Well, it's my pleasure. Welcome to Norbert Putnam. (laughs) So how are you doing today? Well, you know, I just had my 40th birthday for the 35th time, <laughs> and uh, and my my younger daughter, my daughter Janet, just turned 50. She said, Dad, you're going to have to own up to your age now. I can't stand being 10 years older than you. you know? so, <laughs> so, no, everything's good. You know, I do what old men do. I wrote a book, <laughs> you know, and... Uh, I I didn't really want to write a book, but my wife insisted on it. You know, I retired in my mid-40s, and I moved down to Hilton Head Island to die. You know, everyone died at 50, I thought, and uh, I didn't die, okay? But uh, we were invited to a lot of uh, society parties where I'd be the only musician, and invariably someone would ask me a question, Norbert, did you ever play with so-and-so, right? And it was amazing how many times I actually had a reply to that because I I played, we were trying to figure out how many artists I actually worked with, and we know it to be at least five or six hundred artists. Wow. As a studio musician, I could work three or four sessions a day with three or four different artists. I could have a ten to one with an artist, a two to five with another artist, a six to nine and sometimes at 10 to 1 a.m. and you get home at 2 in the morning. Now, I'm only in my early 20s. You, you know, you don't have to sleep until you're 30, right? <laughs> so, so I played with a lot of people, and I, I didn't keep a journal. All I had was my session date books, and those got lost about 20 years ago. So, so this book is my recollection of basically my favorite people who had the most lasting impact on my life. And, and well, it turned out we were at a cocktail party one night, and a guy asked me about Jerry Jeff Walker. And as I told the story, everyone gathered around. And on the way home, my wife said, did you notice the effect that had on people? And these were business people. Mm-hmm. You know, Hilton Head is an enclave of, of CEOs who work in New York and their families live in Hilton Head. And she said, there's so much interest. They think you had a great career. And I said, well, I thought he had a great career. He was CEO of Elizabeth Arden. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? And, and so, so we started collecting uh, story names, artists that I'd worked with that 
that something interesting had to happen. You know, a lot of the sessions I would go into, I walk into the room with with ten or fifteen other singers and musicians, and the producer would come in and say, "This is the artist, is your so and so, right?" And you'd sort of wave at him, and they'd say, "And here's the first song," and they would play down a demo of the first song. We would all grab a legal pad and start sketching out the chord progression, the bass line, and any syncopations that we thought were prevalent. Okay, so that uh, and we could do this as quickly as it was played down. And then uh, the producer would say, "Well, let's guys, let's have a run at it." And he might say, uh, "Briggs, you take the, the the piano intro, and James Burton, would you fill the end of the first verse?" And someone counted off. And this band would play it flawlessly. And we based our playing, we had listened to the guy's voice on the demo. And, and that, that would give us the impetus to morph into the kind of player for his kind of music. If he was a folk singer, if he was a country singer, a gospel singer, a pop singer, <laughs> you know, if he was Tony Joe White or J.J. Kale, someone like that, you would automatically sort of morph into the kind of bass player that should exist on their records. And all the guys in the band could do this. So it was it was kind of great fun because everyone could do it so quickly, you know. Well, I think most stories are best from the beginning. I know that you're from Alabama. If you could kind of paint a picture with words, what was a typical day like when you were growing up? Well, I didn't start to play music until I was 15. And I really had no ambition to be a musician. My father had played bass in some country bands. But uh, he'd gotten into the insurance business. He was earning a good living. and He'd given up that. But we still had that old acoustic bass, the big bull fiddle, he called it, you know. And I'm 15 years old. And some kids at my school were putting a band together. Now, you know, I'm from Florence, Alabama, which is part of the Muscle Shoals I think there are four cities that make up the Muscle Shoals area, okay? But there was a young man who grew up here in the 1950s, and he goes over to Memphis, and he finds a guy named Elvis Presley. The young man was Sam Phillips. His house is about seven blocks from where I'm sitting today, okay? If, if Sam doesn't leave Florence and go to Memphis and find Elvis, I'm in the insurance business with my father, <laughs> Okay. Because at, at the age of 15, some kids at school came up to me and they said, uh, we're forming a band to play this Elvis Presley rockabilly music and, uh, and we need a bass player and no one else in school has one. We know you do, so you need to be the bass player. And I said to Danny Cross, I said, well, what makes you think overnight I can become proficient enough on the bass to play in your band? And he said, Norbert, this Elvis stuff only has three chords. Surely to God you can find three notes on that thing. <laughs> and, uh, so I went to my father, and he said, well, son, he said, uh, I'll show you how to tune the bass. He said, but, uh, you know, I tried to make a living as a musician, as a young man, and it's very difficult. I wouldn't count on ever making any money in the music business. But I started to play with the Rockabilly Boys, and it was a lot of fun. And we're playing sock hops at the, at the school. And we're talking now 1956. I'm 15 years old. And uh, 57, I guess it was. And it was uh, pretty amazing the effect that this rock and roll music had on all the pretty young girls. And so uh, we all took notice of that. 
and started to work harder. <laughs> you know, because in 1957, for a teenage boy, it was uh, cars and girls and cheeseburgers. There wasn't anything else that really mattered, you know. And so I would come home from school every day, go to my room, get my father's acoustic bass, and slap along with Scotty and Bill, okay, those early Sun Records. And a year later, uh, I meet Jerry Kerrigan, and Kerrigan's father is putting together an R&B band that can play the fraternity parties at Alabama, Auburn, Oxford. We'd get down as far as uh, Mississippi State sometimes, Starkville. And uh, this is great, now, but we're not playing Elvis anymore. Now it's James Brown, okay? The college kids didn't dance to Elvis. They danced to James Brown, Bobby Blueblatt, Ray Charles, okay? And so we went from rockabilly to the age of 16 of playing R&B. And about that same time, we met a, a, a delusional man, I called him, here in Florence, Alabama. He was an older guy. I think he might have been 26, you know. <laughs> We're 16 years old. His name was Tom Stafford. And Tom was the manager of the Princess Theater. And Tom said, um, I'm starting a publishing company and right here in Florence, Alabama. We're going to sign great writers and great singers, and we're going to make great records. And I want you guys to come and be the rhythm section. Now, we're 16 years old, and we made a deal with Tom, and we would go up to his little primitive studio, and Tom would sign anybody that could make a rhyme, okay? The songs were awful. None of them could sing. But then again, we had never, ever had to invent original parts on an original song. So... It was great training for us to do this in spite of the fact that not a lot was happening. I guess we did this for about a year and a half, and now I'm getting ready. I'm in my senior year of high school, and a young man came up the steps one day, a new writer, and his name was Arthur Alexander. Arthur reminded me of a young Harry Belafonte, okay? Very handsome guy, 6'2", six, 6'3", six, maybe, and he had a pocket full of great songs. And when he would sing them a cappella to us, because he, he hadn't learned to play an instrument, he had this amazing voice. Well, we started to do demos with Arthur. David Briggs would take him out to the piano and find the chords that Arthur was hearing in his head, you know. And he'd write them out and hand us a chart. And I don't know, it was like a light went off when we had this great writer, great singer. In the years to come, the Beatles uh, would, would have Arthur's first recordings and the Rolling Stones. And when both of those bands got record deals, they covered Arthur Alexander tunes. But right behind Arthur, maybe a month or two after Arthur came up the steps, young Rick Hall came up the steps. And there's a movie called Muscle Shoals, and Rick is the star of the film, okay? Because Rick was the entrepreneur who said, look, I'm going to raise some money to build a real studio, and we're going to make real hit records. Well, he did it over across the river in Muscle Shoals, literally four miles from where I sit today. And Rick had the, he had the impetus to come through with this. He took Arthur, and he took us, and um, rented some warehouse space. It was an old abandoned brick warehouse full of spider webs and cockroaches and dirt. Rick cleaned it out because he didn't have a lot of money. He had enough money to buy a good microphone and two mono tape machines. And uh, he cleaned it up, built himself a little control room, and... A month or two later, we were in there recording Arthur Alexander. And the first songs we did, well, the, the main title song was You Better Move On. 
and the B-side was Get a Shot of Rhythm and Blues. Rick went to Nashville, made a deal with Dot Records. They had a kid named Pat Boone. Remember him? Yeah. Pat, Pat gave Elvis a run for the money for a minute. Okay. But anyway, uh, they knew how to promote a record. And now I've started to school here at North Alabama University. And Donnie Fritz calls me one day and said, it's on the radio. I said, what's on the radio? Because it had been months, you know, since we made it. Arthur's record. Well, he picked me up in his car and we rode around Court Street, which is something we do on Friday nights anyway, looking for girls, you understand. And suddenly it came on the radio. And I want to tell you, Paul, it was like hearing the first broadcast from Mars. It was unbelievable, you know, because we never really expected anything to happen with that. And, and it's blasting out of this six by nine speaker in the old Ford, you know, had lots of bass and it was mono, but I can hear, wow, there's, there's Kerrigan's drums. That's Briggs's piano and Terry's guitar and Arthur sounding like a million dollars. Okay. Well, the record makes it all the way up to the fifties, forties, thirties. It got into the twenties. I think it peaked out around number 22. But the amazing thing was, uh, for the first time, there was a record out of Muscle Shoals, just like old Tom Stafford had predicted. <laughs> he wasn't delusional, you know. And, uh, and Rick Hall made enough money off that recording to build the modern-day studio you see over there, which is Fame Studios in, Tus- in, in Muscle Shoals. And uh, I'd invite you to come here. As a matter of fact, in the years to come, the second Muscle Shoals rhythm section uh, develops another studio called Muscle Shoals Sound. And between the two of them, they were probably responsible for about at least 80% of the great records that came out of Muscle Shoals. Muscle Shoals Sound was doing Rod Stewart, Paul Simon, you know. Now the Rolling Stones recorded there. And Rick went on to record Aretha Franklin and Wilson Pickett. Now we worked for Rick for the first four or five years and actually opened for the Beatles when they came to America. Uh, they knew our work from Arthur's record. Uh, John Lennon said it was his favorite record, okay? Hmm. And when they came to America, they asked us to be the backup band. And so that was pretty much the early days in Muscle Shoals. Uh, we, had, we had a guy in Atlanta who came up named Bill Lowry, and he brought a whole stable of great writers. He had a group called the Tams. We, we did a record called What Kind of Fool Do You Think I Am? Great and, song. Uh, yeah, that was our second hit record after Arthur. And then Tommy Rowe came up from Atlanta. You know, Tommy was this pretty young boy who looked like a male model and uh, was having hits all over Europe. And uh, uh, Joe South shows up, Billy Joe Royal, you know. And, of course, uh, other people in the stable down there was uh, Ray Stevens, okay, Jerry Reed. (laughs) They all came through here on their way to Nashville. And, And in 1965, we joined them and moved to Nashville the first Muscle Shoals rhythm section. And when we got to Nashville, we really blossomed because we sort of knew that Presley wasn't likely to come to Muscle Shoals or Roy Orbison, you know. And so we get to Nashville and we we have to fine-tune our playing because those Nashville cats had all kinds of secret weapons. You know, they, they could write the song out in shorthand as it's being played and instantly sit down at their instruments and play it back to the artist and producer. So we had a little bit of homework to do there. And I had to get my sight reading together because I'm going to be playing with Henry Mancini's orchestra in a year or two. Henry writes every note I play. Henry would say, no no ad-libbing, play the paper, play the paper. (laughs) 
and his bass parts were flawless, you know. So I went from being a Muscle Shoals guy who could take all afternoon to figure out the bass part to being a Nashville guy. I had five minutes to get the bass part together, you know. And it was uh, it, it was great pressure, and it, it really enabled me to learn to focus, learn to relate, you know. And I'm so happy I did it because in Nashville, I could work with three or four different artists in a day. In Muscle Shoals, we might do one artist for the whole week, you know. We take a whole week to do ten or twelve songs, and so uh, so it was. It was by the time I'm 28 years old, I've played on 10,000 recordings. And uh, David and I build a studio together called Quadraphonic. There had been a guy at Columbia Studios who took a job there as a cleanup man, and I thought he. My first impression of this guy was that he was a homeless guy. He had uh, long hair, all disheveled hair, and wore faded black jeans that had hardly any black in them and faded t-shirts and scuffy boots. And he had taken a job working for Charlie, helping clean the studios and empty the ashtrays. And he came over one day and he said, hey, my name's Chris. He says, you're Norbert Putnam, aren't you? And I said, I am. He said, well, can I empty that ashtray? I said, well, Chris, I don't smoke. So you've got an easy go when I'm here. Okay. Okay. Well, Chris, I would go in and I'd see Chris all the time. I was a little worried about him because he didn't have any other clothes, you know. And I knew he lived in the attic with an old house. And one day he came over, I guess he'd been working there about two months, and he said, uh, you think you could have a beer with me on your five o'clock break? And I went with him to Ireland's a pub. And uh, I remember saying to him, now order anything you want, Chris, because I'm thinking of $35. He doesn't have any money. His name was Chris Christofferson. <laughs> and we're sitting there, and Chris says to me, he says, uh, you know, I came up here to see if I could write hit songs. And I looked at him and gave him my standard speech, which was, well, Chris, do you realize today you and 4,000 other people are trying to write hit songs? And your chances are slim and none. <laughs> you know, when he said to me, well, I played my songs for Scotty Moore and he's giving me some free studio time. And I was wondering if I could get you and Kerrigan and Briggs, maybe Chip Young. Chip was another Atlanta boy. To do some demos on a Saturday morning. I can't pay you anything. Well, it took a while to get the boys to agree to to work on Saturday because it's, that was the only day we could, Saturdays and Sundays, the only time we saw our families, you understand. And uh, because we worked so late every night. But we ended up going to help Chris with his demos and we were astounded that this guy I had taken to be a homeless guy was a brilliant writer. The lyrics were great. Voice not so hot. <laughs> As a matter of fact, my partner, David Briggs, when we first heard him sing, he said, this guy's worse than Dylan. <laughs> so Bob had sort of opened that door, you know. And Chris took those demos. And the next thing I know, Sammy Smith is doing one of his songs and it's in the top 10. And then he's out to California auditioning for a Sam Peckinpah movie. And then I'm playing bass on his album. And this was around 1968 or 69. And a year or two goes by. And he comes back in California. been making a movie. And he called me and he said, uh, you play bass on all bias sessions, don't you? And I said, I do. Are you working the sessions next week? I am. Do you think you could get me in? I'd like to picture a song, he said. And uh, when Joni came to town, there was a little more security at, uh, at Columbia Studios because, you know, she'd marched with Martin Luther King in Mississippi. 
There were Southerners who didn't didn't like Joan Baez. But I got him in to meet Joan at the end of the week, and uh, he went out to California, spent some time with her, and she called me the next year and said, uh, I'm coming back to Nashville to do another record, and Chris is going to produce it. Oh, great. He's my old buddy, you see. And she said, uh, would you book a younger band? I want you to lead the band. Grady Martin, who was 20 years my senior, had always led the band. And so I assembled a bunch of the younger players like myself. And I went down to the studio the first day, and Chris had had a few cocktails. He was back He was back in the corner, and he wasn't moving. I went back to see him, and I said, now, Chris, I said, now, let me tell you about record producing. I said, first of all, we'll get some coffee in you, and if you will sit in the control room and not utter a word, this great band with John Baez will make her a great album. Well, I'm not doing it. I'm not producing it. Well, now I'm thinking I'm going to have to cancel guys for 15 sessions. They're going to kill me, right? When he said, I've been talking to Joni, we think you should do it. Oh, I said, where is Joni? She's upstairs. I ran upstairs, and she was in one of the offices at Quad. I walked in. I said, John, uh, have you seen Chris? Norbert, Chris has had a few drinks. Do you think you could help me make this record? You could plug your bass in the desk and listen in the control room, couldn't you? I said, yes, I could. Well, let's do it, she said. And it was a... It was an album called Blessed R, and it had some of her favorite uh, contemporary writers. There was a Stevie Wonder song. There was a Lennon McCartney song. There was a couple of Mickey Newberry songs. And uh, and a song by um, a kid in the band, Robbie Robertson, had a song called The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. Well, we recorded that, and it was my first production. It sold a million and a half. And suddenly I went from being a studio guy to a record producer, okay? And uh, so I can thank Chris Christofferson for that, the homeless man, <laughs> and my good luck for that, you know? And I flew up to New York. Clive Davis gave me young Dan Fogelberg. And another great guy, Eric Anderson. We had a record called Blue River that year that was fantastic. And so suddenly I go from being a, a busy bass player all day and all night to a more leisure record producer. I can take my time now. Oh, I can come home from dinner to, for dinner, you know. I was never able to come home for dinner as a studio guy. So the, the, the 70s was taken up with me producing John Baez, Dan Fogelberg. I get Jimmy Buffett in 1977. And I did about 70 albums over the next 10 years with various people. And uh, my life changed forever, you know. And I started to say, you know, I, I, my first record sold a million and a half, and my career has been downhill ever since. But, <laughs> but, but young Jimmy Buffett and I sold a lot of records of Margaritaville. Just amazing stories. It's, it's just incredible. Well, that's what everyone thinks, but you realize that all my friends was having the same life? <laughs> When we'd get together on weekends, or Kenny Butcher and I play golf with Charlie McCoy, we never ever said to each other, boy, aren't we the luckiest guys in the world? We're talking about, hey, would you just watch my backswing because I can't get it in a fairway, you know? So my entire social life was, was people, I would never say to Jerry Reed, did you play with anyone famous last week? <laughs> you know? it, it was just, we were all playing with famous, iconic people every day. It took me moving to Hilton Head in about the mid-80s and being around normal 
people. I'll admit Hilton Head was more affluent than most communities. But when I would mention stories in my life, they were astounded, like it really was an extraordinary life. And my wife finally said one night, we were coming home from a dinner party, and I'd recited a story, I think it was about Jerry Jeff Walker. I considered Jerry Jeff to be a minor star. You know what I'm saying? He wasn't Elvis Presley or Roy Orbison or Linda Ronstadt. And, but the guy who asked the question, Jerry Jeff was the biggest artist in the world to him. He loved Jerry Jeff. And it taught me a lesson. You know, sometimes a Jerry Jeff Walker, it turned out this guy, he said, you know, Norbert, he, at my fraternity, it was my turn to pick an artist. And I, and I chose Jerry Jeff. And I picked him up at the airport and spent the afternoon with him. And that was the reason. He'd never, ever met another artist, you see, <laughs> and spent time with him. And, of course, Jerry Jeff wrote Mr. Bojangles, one of the classic records of all time. And so uh, so I said to Cheryl, I said, do you think we could do a book? And she said, yes. Yeah. She said, you should start, we should make a list of any of the artists that had a compelling sort of story. Maybe something happened in the session that you remembered, you know. And so, basically, if you buy a copy of Music Lessons Volume 1, and, and by the way, uh, Paul, you can get this at Amazon, and you can buy it also at NorbertPutnam.com. Uh, you can get signed copies at NorbertPutnam.com. But um, we started making a list, and it took me a year to make a list of people, because I didn't have my session books anymore. And so many times I might play with the iconic artist, and we didn't say two words to each other. You know what I'm saying? We would start at 10, finish at 1. I'm waving goodbye to him as I head to my, my lunch and my 2 o'clock session. And so, uh, Music Lessons Volume 1 is just a collection of my favorite stories. What was Joan Baez like to work with in the studio? Totally professional, totally prepared, and um, totally... Uh, she had told... At the time I get to Joni... I guess Joni was uh, approaching her 30s. I was 28 years old. She's a little older than I am. And I remember she came into quad that week. And once we started, uh, I set her up so that she could play her guitar and do the vocal at the same time with the rhythm section. Now, this can be a problem for a lot of lesser talents. But if you play The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, she plays a little bass line that leads into the vocal. And she played it flawlessly and in time with the rhythm section. You know that thing? And she did that while delivering the vocal live. We played it until Baez got the vocal. That would take somewhere between three and four takes before she nailed it, okay? And that was pretty much true of all the artists that we worked with back then. Because we didn't have Pro Tools, we didn't have multi-track, we didn't have pitch correction, okay? The band was, was, we were trained to accompany that singer flawlessly. We didn't want to make any mistakes. Because in the early days, it was going down to two-track and three-track. If I played a bad bass note, the whole band had to back up. And we could splice it in sometimes. But if you played a lot of bad bass notes, you never saw that person in the studios ever again, okay? And so... So, so we were very good, but I, I try to tell, you know, I, I'm, I'm speaking tomorrow to the, a class of, uh, of music industry studies kids here at UNA, University of North Alabama. And of course, they're all working with Pro Tools and pitch correction and unlimited editing abilities, you know. And when I tell them these stories, they're, 
they're dumbfounded how anybody could could perform without occasionally making a mistake or singing a bad note, you know. But they could all do it in the sixties and the seventies. And Joni was Joni was a bit and so and 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 five nights. Now we're working nine hours. We would work two to five, six to nine, ten to one a.m. We did twenty-four sides, and when we finished that Friday night, we had all of her vocals and all of the instrumental tracks. The next week, we overdubbed harmonies, and I brought in a few people to play extra parts on guitars and various. Inst- oh, we overdubbed strings on part of it, so we had to write the strings. The record was finished basically in two weeks, and uh, <laughs> for twenty-four sides, that in today's world. There are a lot of contemporary acts that will work the next year on making 10 or 12 songs. Yeah. So that would bore me to death. I'm happy. I'm happy I was around. In the, we call that the golden age. All the singers could sing. All the musicians could play. The engineers could record. And that was it. Yeah. It, was, it was like instantaneous art. One of the artists that you produced... The book has a very interesting story about how you came to work with Dan Fogelberg, mm-hmm. just one of the great all-time singer-songwriters. I'm hoping you can tell us that story about Mr. Clive Davis <laughs> and your work with the great Dan Fogelberg. <laughs> well, you know, you read the book, right? You have the book? Yes, indeed. And... uh now, now I've only produced one record, and it's the night they drove they they drove old Dixie down, and my phone rings, and it's Clive Davis, and he's um, he's president of the biggest record label in America at the time, Columbia Records. Norbert, I want you to fly up to New York. I want you to produce for CBS, you know, for Columbia. And uh, I flew into New York, and I was kind of daydreaming about the kind of music I might produce for Clive, you know. And I show up at his office, and he says, Norbert Putnam, you have just produced a multi-million seller on Joan Baez. She normally sells 100000 You sold a million and a half. You know something about folk music. Well, I never ever thought I knew anything about folk music. He said, so I want you to do all the folkies on CBS. I said, well, I'd love to do Bob Dylan. Oh, oh, no, we have someone for Bob. He's doing great, okay? <laughs> and so I'm thinking, I'm thinking, well, what do you have in mind? He said, I've got this kid from Peoria. His name is Dan Fogelberg, okay? And I was sitting there trying to figure out if that name was Norwegian or Scandinavian. And when he said, um, Norbert, the kid can play, he can write, he can sing. He's a 19-year-old prodigy. And Clive could see that I sort of had a disappointed look on my face with that folk music word, you know. And uh, he said, uh, he said, uh, now look, he said, I can see you probably don't want to do this. But he said, if you would do this for me, Clive, and he pointed his finger at me and he said, Norbert Putnam, if you will do this for me, I will make you a very, very wealthy young man. I think it was that second very that got me, you know. So he said, take this home. He said, he said I've got another act named uh, Eric Anderson I want you to do. You can do them both. And I'll give you great budgets. And uh, But take this Fogelberg home and listen to it. And call me and tell me if you want to do it. Well, young Dan, I took it home. And I, I, 
in those days we had reel-to-reel tapes. You remember that? Well, you may not be old enough to remember that. But uh, but we so I put it on my my little uh, Revox tape machine, and it was a demo that Dan had uh, produced himself. He played all the instruments. He played drums, bass, guitars, keyboards, and he did all the harmony vocals. It was amazing, okay? And I'm sitting there thinking, this kid is only 19 years old? I rushed to the phone. I called Clive. I said, Clive, you're right. This kid's got it. I want to do it. He said, well, he goes, um, it's going to be between you and Jim Messina. You know, you remember Loggins and Messina? And Messina was a great writer, producer. Yeah. He, he said, uh, all right. He said, I'll have Dan come down and meet with you first. Oh, and he's got a young kid manager named Irving Azoff. Irving goes on to be the biggest manager in show business, okay? And uh, so Dan's going to fly down and meet with me on a Friday. Then they're going on to California and meet with Jim Messina at the first of the next week. And then we'll have, it'll be between the two of us. Well, I don't even know Jim Messina, but I'm hoping I get it. And he doesn't, you know. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so Dan came down to Nashville. And it's that, that Friday morning started off rather poorly for me because it was National Secretary's Week. And uh, the girls who work for me, at the first of that week, David Briggs had come into my office, and David's playing all the time, sessions. He said, could you take the girls to lunch because it's a Nashville deal that all the, all the business owners take their secretaries and receptionists to lunch. I said, I'll handle it. I forgot all about it. And Friday's here, and I'm waiting for Dan. It's about, well, he's showing up around noon. It's about a quarter to 12. There's a knock on my door. And I go out, and the girls are standing in the hall, the receptionist and the bookkeeper and the, the other lady who booked the sessions. And uh, and they're sort of motioning me to come into the hall. And I follow them, and they're backing away from me towards the back office and just giving me hand signals to come forward. It's the weirdest thing ever. And we get back to where the bathroom was, Okay. And David Briggs had put a shower in there. Some nights when he worked till 2 a.m., he would sleep on the sofa and take a shower and go to work the next day. One of them kicked the door open. They, three of them grabbed me and pushed me in there and turned the water on, shoved me in the shower. So I climb out of the shower, and they're running down the staircase, shouting profanities at me. <laughs> As young Dan Fogelberg and Irving Azoff is trying to make their way up the staircase. And as I come out with water dripping from my sleeve, there's Dan and Irving, smiling, almost laughing. They thought it was the funniest thing you'd ever seen. And I'm shaking the water off, and we came on in, and I'm trying to get my senses about me. And we talked about Dan's record and uh, my impressions about what we should do, right? Well, they flew to California, and the next week, uh, Clive called me and said, Dan and Irving think they want to work with you. Oh, I was pleased about that. And we began, and we did that first record called Home Free. It opens with To the Morning, a beautiful piece. And uh, as the years went by, Dan and I did, I worked on just about every record he did, but I only produced Home Free, and he and I co-produced Netherlands and Phoenix. And uh, at this point in time, he's selling out stadiums, you know. I asked him one night that we were in Sausalito a few years later. I said, Dan, Tell me, why did you choose me over Messina? Because Messina was a really talented guy. He said, Norbert, when we came up the steps, 
And those women were running past us, cursing you, <laughs> shouting in <laughs> these profanities. I just thought, this is the place I'd like to be. These people have a lot of fun, you know. And, and he said, I also knew you didn't fire any of them. I said, well, I couldn't have fired them. They actually ran the business. <laughs> so so Dan came to Nashville, and we had a great time together. And, uh, and people, you know, ask me today, they say, uh, Norbert, of all the people you worked with, who was the most talented? And I'll say, well, this kid Fogelberg, he was a triple threat because Dan could write. When he was 19 years old, he was writing songs that a, that a man of 40 might have written. You know, he was, had a maturity about him. And he could play the guitar with any of the Nashville studio pros. And he was a whiz on the keyboards. He had, he had a classical technique on keyboards. And I said, I never ran across another artist who could really do all three as well as young Fogelberg. And, uh, and that, you know, Presley was perhaps the greatest purveyor of emotion. When Elvis decided to go and do that vocal, he could hit a button and he could breathe life into that thing. And he would do all the, all the sounds that human beings are capable of making from a shrill cry of fear to a deep orgasmic sort of grasp, you know. He was a great singer. But old Dan... Dan could do all, he could do almost everything. And so he was very special to me. What was Fogelberg like on a personal level, the man behind the music? Oh, he was fun. He liked to have fun, you know. And, uh, but we, we, you know, we didn't, we didn't do drugs or drink because you can't do that and be great, right? But Dan and I would go out and have a couple of beers and, uh, and we talk about the things everyone talks about. We didn't talk about music very much. We would talk about sports. You know, he was he followed his uh, football team up there in Champaign. I can't even remember what they were called. You know, of course, I was down here talking about Alabama. And uh, no, he was just the most normal guy in the world, you know. And he loved, he loved beautiful women and girls. He was a little shy, you know, because he started young. But I, for his, I never met a 19-year-old who had the talent and the skills young Fogelberg had, and uh, it was a. But 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 it could have been his DNA. You know, his father uh, was a big-time uh, horn player. He played with uh, Les Brown's band during the war, and of course, those are great California musicians who backed up Bing Crosby, Bob Hope, and uh, and his mother, I think, had appeared on Broadway. So he had some show business genes in him, and uh, it, it was it was a shame we lost him so early. You know, it was it was a late uh, prognosis on on uh, prostate cancer, and if they had gotten him early enough, he might still be with us. Another artist, very associated with the manager you mentioned, Irving Azoff, would be. One truly unique singer, songwriter, recording artist. And of course, we're talking about Jimmy Buffett. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, Jimmy ends up being managed. After we get the big hit record with Margaritaville, Irving Azoff swooped in and bought him away from Don Light, who was his manager in Nashville. And of course, uh, Jimmy, as far as being a producer is concerned, Margaritaville has outsold every record I ever did. That's due in large part by the fact that Mr. Buffett, Mr. Buffett goes, Jimmy goes out every year and plays for millions of people. I've met people who have said to me, Norbert, you've made a lot of money off me. And I'd say, I have. 
Well, yeah, he said, I bought that record back there in 1977. And I gave it to somebody five years later and I buy it again. And 10 years later, the CDs come out, I buy it again. He said, I have bought your Jimmy Buffett music for the last 40 years and it's the same music over and over. <laughs> and so, so uh, Margaritaville, you know, was the only top 10 record that Jimmy had until he did that duet with Alan Jackson, wasn't it, a few years ago? Yeah. And so, and I, I can accept responsibility for a lot of that because my good friend Don Gant had produced uh, Come Monday, which was his first, we call that a radio record. It made it to the top 20, sold about 100,000 records. And uh, I got a call from Don Light, who was Jimmy's manager. And he said, Jimmy wants to do the next record with the, his live band that tours with him rather than studio musicians. And Don Gant, who had produced Come Monday, and Don was one of the most talented guys in Nashville. He had been a violinist in the Youth Symphony. He could sight read any vocal part. I was in a band with him called the Neon Philharmonic, and we had a record called Morning Girl that you might remember from the late 60s. And, well, Don, when Jimmy came in and said, I want to use my road band, Don said, I'm not working with road musicians. They don't understand the studio. They're frightened by it, and we'll waste a day before they figure out how to do it, which was true in part, okay? And so... Don, Don Light said, would you meet with Jimmy and talk about it? Well, Jimmy came over and met me one night at a restaurant after we'd finished dinner. And we sat there. And, and I said, well, tell me about your band. He said, well, they're more like the Rolling Stones in some Nashville studio band. <laughs> and I said, and, that, and the funny thing, I, I was sitting there trying to imagine the Rolling Stones playing Come Monday. <laughs> it did not compute, okay? And so... He said, but we're playing here in a couple of weeks. Would you come and hear us and just see the, I want you to feel the energy. And he played Hermitage Landing, which was outside Nashville, Percy Priest Lake. I went out there and the band was great and the energy level was high. It was like a rock concert with Jimmy's folk tunes, you know. And uh, I went backstage and I said, hey, count me in, play me some songs. And a few days later, we got together, and he plays me ocean songs. All the songs are about sailing and drinking rum, you know, and getting into trouble on an island somewhere. And I'm sitting there thinking, Jimmy, we need to record this at the ocean. We need to be breathing salt air in our lungs, you know. And he was saying, but you've got the greatest studio in Nashville. I did, but I couldn't get in there all the time. I'd been going down to Miami a lot to Criteria. So I said, there's this great studio in Miami, Criteria, and you could bring the whole band. I'll rent a big house on the bay for everyone. We'll have a maid and a, a cook, and, uh, and, uh, and we'll try to invent something that will be identifiable in the backing track. Well, he didn't like that because he likes his band the way they are. Well, what are you thinking about, he said. And I really hadn't thought about it. I said, well, if we could have a little bit of the Caribbean sounds that come out of the islands back there with your rock band, maybe that could be really cool. And he said, well, it sounds like a South Seas soundtrack or something to a Michener film. <laughs> he wasn't really digging it. And, and I actually thought that I probably wouldn't talk to Jimmy Buffett again. And he said, I'll call you. 
It wasn't more than three or four days later, my phone rang, and Jimmy said, you know, you might have something. Because I always <laughs> tried, it was all part of my my uh, operating manual to try to invent a, a, a backing track that would be identifiable with any artist I worked with. And with Fogelberg, it was, it was his guitars and strings, or his piano and strings, you know. And uh, Jimmy calls, he says, Okay, he says, I've started the first song. I said, well, what's it called? Changes in attitudes, changes in latitudes. We're leaving Nashville and we're going to the ocean. Ah, I thought you, you, you're going to do it. Okay. Well, he also mentioned to me that he'd gotten his first check off of Come Monday. And he said, I've just bought a used Charlie catch. and I'm going to have it moved over to Coconut Grove. So every day after we finish recording, we can go sailing. Ah, I love this. So we found ourselves, I guess it's two months later. It took some time to put it all together. We found ourselves going to Criteria. I rented a big house on the bay for the band. And and he took everybody. The roadies were there, everyone. But we, uh, I decided we'd work every day from 11 to 5. Because this band of his, they like to party at night, right? So I thought if I can get them to start to party at 6 o'clock, maybe we can get them in bed by 10 or 11. And it was working out great. He'd rehearsed the band, and these uh, these uh, live players were doing great. I brought in two ringers, the great drummer Kenny Buttry. I brought him down to play percussion. I thought if anyone stumbles, it'll be the drummer. And uh, Teddy Irwin came down from New York to cover any guitar parts that the band had trouble. And everything was just going great. First week slid by, and I think it was maybe Monday morning, the second week, we were at breakfast. And Jimmy said, I've started a new song. Oh, I said, what's it about? Well, it's it's kind of a true story about, you know, I go down to Key West, I've got a place there, and, uh, and I played a bar one night. I just went in and started playing, and I was in my shorts, and I had on flip-flops, and I drank too much rum, and on the way home, he said, I don't know, I, I just lost my flip-flop, and I just decided, well, I'm only a block from the house. I just kept walking. I stepped on a beer can, cut my foot real bad, and I get up the next morning, I'm hungover, and I'm thinking, well, you know, the cure for a hangover is margarita, and I can't find the salt, and, and I'm just stumbling around, but I've got some shrimp boiling, and I get over, and i got my guitar, I'm sitting on my front porch swing, well, he's painting this great little scenario for Norbert Putnam, right? I'm thinking, this is a video, isn't it, right? And uh, and he's describing it to me. And, you know, David Briggs and I had a publishing company. And for all of you writers out there, all of you kids who want to be songwriters, all great songs have contain one ingredient. There's some form of, there's some form of uh, conflict, okay? And it can either be between you and your girlfriend or worse, okay? And as Jimmy's going along describing this song to me, I'm hoping he'll have some conflict somewhere. Well, that was the end of the conversation. We go on and we rehearse, well, we record for a couple of days. And near the end of the week, the second week, near the end of the tracking, he barged into the studio at 1030 one morning. Norbert, I've got that song. You've got to hear it. And I've forgotten. What song? Margaritaville. Oh, and he, he went over and he sat down where the rhythm guitar player was. 
And I can still see him. He, he, he took his legal pad and put it up there on the music stand. And it's got all scratched out lines on it, you know. And he grabbed the guitar player's rhythm guitar and he started singing. Nibbling on sponge cake, watching the sun bake. All those tourists covered in oil. Well, you can see those guys in their shorts, you know, and their white socks and their yellow shoes. And <laughs> and, and uh, he goes on and talks about me losing his flip-flop, stepping on a pop-top. It wasn't a pop-top. It was a beer can, okay? So he, he used some artistic uh, license here. But as he went along, I'm thinking, this is a pretty cool video. And I'm wondering, will he introduce any conflict? And he gets to the chorus. But I'm wasting away in Margaritaville, searching for my lost shaker of salt. And here it comes. Some people claim there's a woman to blame, but I know it's my own damn fault. <laughs> so he introduces conflict, and then he then he takes then he takes all the all all the blame for it and claims humility. It's my own damn. Now we have to give him a hug. You see? So he covered all the emotional bases. I just sat there and I thought, this is one of the best formed songs I've ever heard. <laughs> and and I think history's proven that to be true. And and it took us a while to get it going, but uh, over the next hour, we finished Margaritaville. And, uh, and, now, and you know, it's 40 years now. It was 1977. <laughs> it's going to be 40, 41 years this year. And it's one of the biggest selling records in the MCA catalog multiples of millions we we had a version that went into walmart 10 years ago it had sold 9 million songs you know by heart and uh i'm not even sure what it sold but i think it's over 30 million units now so thank you mr buffett he funded my retirement you know? <laughs> <laughs> if you could describe it what do you think it is about him why why is he so beloved Oh, he's a, he's a great, he's a great storyteller. You know, half the time, if you were to see Buffett early on, he still does this. They say, oh, this is a song I wrote one night when Jerry Jeff Walker and I got thrown in jail in New Orleans. And there was an old, you know, he would always have a little vignette that he could uh, lay out before the song. And uh, people love that, don't they? If you, if you can set your song up, with a story, and he was one of the great raconteurs, and still is, Jimmy Buffett. And so he was more than just a, a troubadour singer. I hate to see them get up there, don't you, and just go from one song to the next and just nod their head at the audience, you know? <laughs> no personality. Yeah, and he had he had it for days and still does. You know, you know, Jimmy, I think, has just turned 70. Yeah, 71. Yeah, yeah. And I think I told you, I've ju I just had my 40th birthday for the 35th time. Uh, <laughs> so he's much older than I am. You know? so. <laughs> One more thing about Buffett that I thought was really interesting in your book, Music Lessons, that I had noticed about him, but I really hadn't seen a lot of people mention. There's a song that you all recorded, a standard, Stars Fell on Alabama. <laughs> yes, yes. You played, I believe, the upright bass on? Yeah, because we, we did it in an old-fashioned style. And, you know, I, I learned to play big band bass when I worked with Mancini and Al Hurt. Mm -hmm. I did five albums with Al Hurt, where it was all the great American songbook. Gershwin, Cole Porter, and uh, Johnny Mercer, and Irving Berlin, you know. 
Well, I'll tell you that we didn't plan to do the song, but Jimmy, we, we, we decided we'd come and do a record in Muscle Shoals. Muscle Shoals Sound had a great studio, and it was, it was to be this sort of Alabama record, and it was a coming, coming home for me, right? Even though Jimmy's band played on all of it. And uh, we got down here, and he didn't have a lot of songs. And I, I don't know if I said it or if he said it. I said, why don't we do Stars Fell on Alabama? Well, let's do it, you know. And so it was a good time kind of thing. And uh, I, I've forgotten who the bass player was, but there was an electric bass on it. And we end up back at my house in Franklin, Tennessee. And uh, I said to him, let me put the acoustic bass on there. And I went, I went inside, found my acoustic bass, and played a part that was pretty much like a big band part, you know. And everyone loved that. They're still playing it here in Alabama. <laughs> they don't play it in Georgia so much, you know. <laughs> but you mentioned in the book that he has almost a, a crooning quality at times. Yeah, and he was a great crooner. If you listen to uh, one of the songs we did, Keith Sykes wrote a song called Coast of Marseille. I sat there on the coast. Yeah. And Jimmy crooned it like Bing Crosby might have crooned it, you know. And he had this lovely sort of lower baritone voice. And uh, I don't know if he can do that anymore. But you might give your listeners just a taste of Coast of Marseille. And, uh, what artist that you've worked with would you say impressed you the most? Elvis Presley, hands down, okay. I didn't expect him to be as smart as he was. He was one of the most intelligent people I ever spent time with. But if you would hear him speak, and he was shy about speaking, when, the, when he'd have those news conferences, he was really shy. And he sounded sort of like an uneducated boy from Tupelo. Well, he was uneducated. But when it came time for him to be Elvis Presley, he would come to the studio in Nashville and he wanted to work at night because as he got older, he became nocturnal. You know, he would, he would sleep all day and get up at five o'clock, have his breakfast at six. <laughs> he was ready to start his day at eight o'clock, just 12 hours off of where we all were. And we would break at night to have lunch. Okay. But he'd show up at eight o'clock in the evening. By the way, I would have played a 10 session, that 10 to one session that morning and a two to five that afternoon. And I've waited around RCA from six o'clock on before he shows up at eight. But he would come in and sit with us and tell us funny Elvis stories. It was always about the fans trying to break, break into the fence at Graceland or grab a piece of his clothing or something, you know. And he would, he would sit down and have us laughing like a bunch of fools in about 30 minutes with these great stories. Well, well, what he was actually doing, when I first played for Presley, that first night, I didn't know, I'm trying to figure out who this guy will be. He's a huge film star, right? He is the biggest selling recording artist in the world. Well, by the way, he is today also. Last year, Elvis Presley probably sold around 10, 15 million records on music he made 50 years ago or longer. So, but he would sit down and tell us funny stories. And I'd be thinking, you know, I'm from Florence, Alabama. He's from Tupelo. It's 70 miles. He was just like all the kids I grew up with. We're laughing about the same things. 
And uh, you would forget, by the time you started recording, you would forget that this guy can really do it. But he was so focused. That first song, and he, it would be a new song, and you have the lyric sheet. And he's been singing it with a demo singer twice. And he's ready to do it. Now, we sketched it out, and we're going to be able to play it. He would turn around to the band, and he'd say, you guys got that? Yeah, Elvis, we've got a chart. You want to do it in that key? Well, I don't know. What key is it? And David would say, it's E flat. Take it up a half step, David. David would give him an E. A little higher. Give him an F. Let's try off, okay? All right, now I mark my chart off. And Jerry Kerrigan counts it off. The band plays it flawlessly. There are no mistakes, okay? And while that's happening, the engineer is getting his final balances on all the instruments. And after one run-through, Elvis would look in at the control room to Felton Jarvis. Hey, Felton, you guys ready to take one? Let's make one. All right, the red light's coming on. We're playing it for the second time, okay? And the king, he's going to try to nail this vocal on the first take. He never worked his way up to it. He took a deep breath and he started full out. <laughs> he would attack that song. And we'd be holding on to his emotions. His emotions determined our progression of dynamics. So we would come up and match his emotion. And if he took it down, we would take it down. And here he comes again on the chorus. you know. And boy, that was great fun. And then he would say, hey, Felton, I want to listen. And he'd run in the control room and we'd watch through the window. If he listens once and he's playing it again, he's thinking about keeping it. Oh, meanwhile, the band, we've huddled and we have fine-tuned our playing. Briggs is going to take the intro and James Burton's going to take the end of the first chorus. And we're making a few changes. Oh my God, he's playing it a third time. So we worked out a little system and we took turns doing this. When it was my turn, I'd have to run inside I'd be standing beside Elvis. He'd say, hey, Pat, what's up? I'd say, Elvis, you think you could do one more for me? Well, sure. W what are you thinking? He'd say, well, I've got a little thing on the bass I think I can do in the chorus. And David and James want to swap the intro. Oh, he'd say, all right, let's do it again, guys. Okay, tell all the technicians. Get ready. We're going to do it again. He'd rush back out and he would go at it again with the same emotion he had the first time. Okay. And sometimes, if we didn't have it after the second one, James would go out and beg. The funny thing about Presley, if we kept asking him to do it again, he would do it until we were happy. I never worked for another artist like that. Usually the artists would say, hey, Norbert, I got mine. Why didn't you get yours? <laughs> so we loved this guy. We really loved him. I hated it. When he died, it killed me. You know? What are you the most proud of? Well, I, first of all, I'm most thankful more than proud. Uh, very few people ever get an opportunity like I got, okay? The fact that Arthur Alexander came up the steps one day and he had a great song. If he doesn't come up the steps, I'm probably in the insurance business and you have no interest in talking to me or having me on your radio show. But Arthur got us in front of the world. The Beatles, uh, George Harrison talked to me about the day John Lennon brought that record into a Beatles rehearsal in Liverpool. And one thing led to another and to another. And it seemed like uh, fortune was on our side, you know. Muscle Shoals managed to succeed. You know, we were the smallest city in America to be considered a music town. You can understand in Memphis, Detroit, Philadelphia, New York, 
that you could find good musicians to make music. Here we are in Florence, Alabama. We had 23,000 people, you know. And the fact that we had a handful of guys who could make records was a miracle. And I don't know, we went to Nashville, and the Nashville, the older players in Nashville embraced us. They realized that they needed to bring along a younger rhythm section, and Nashville had so much business. And so we became the young cats, the Nashville cats of the, of the mid-60s who accompanied Bob Dylan and Tony Joe White and Joan Baez and, and J.J. Kale and the artists that rocked more, you know. And by 1970, folk rock was really happening. You know, Johnny Cash had a, a network show in prime time. I think it was on ABC. But it wasn't a hillbilly show. Johnny Cash would have Derek and the Dominoes on. Matter of fact, in 1971, he had Neil Young, James Taylor, and Linda Ronstadt as his guests. That's not exactly a Nashville hillbilly show. And my friend Elliot Mazur found out where they were staying. They would have to come in and rehearse for the show. And he ran down and got Neil Young in a bar and said, Hey, you want to come over to Quad and cut some of your songs while you're here? And Neil said, well, I do have a few songs. He said, well, maybe you could get uh, James and Linda. Well, that next weekend, they came into Quad and did Keep Me Searching for a Heart of Gold, okay, <laughs> which is the biggest song in his career. And uh, James Taylor hung around and played banjo and Old Man, Old Man, I take a look at your life, I'm a lot like you. And Linda was singing background vocals. Now, you know, the gods have to arrange stuff like this, right? <laughs> and so, so uh, I was, I'm the most thankful guy. And I, I'm proud of the fact I survived all of it and that I could perform in a high enough, at a high enough level to be a part of that. You know, when I got to Nashville, uh, I started to take bass lessons because uh, I'm, I'm doing a lot of big band stuff. And I'm doing a lot of session with live orchestra and strings. And I'd occasionally have to bow the bass part with the strings in the opening intro and then pizzicato the rest of the way. So I find a guy who plays first bass for Houston Symphony Orchestra and he comes to my house and gives me arco lessons. When you bow the bass, it's arco, right? And uh, so every Saturday morning, I'd have one hour of, uh, of symphonic bass with a great, great player, which enabled me to be able to do a lot of things, you know? I also found out I wasn't. I was a little hesitant to take lessons when you're when you're one of the top players. You think, boy, if the other guys find out I'm taking lessons, and then I find out Chet Atkins has two teachers. He has two lessons every week, and he's he's the great biggest selling guitarist in the world. Is Chet Atkins, but he's studying classical guitar. He's learning to play Segovia. So you know the trick is to never stop learning, don't you think, Paul? I think that's true. Yes. <laughs> Well, for all the listeners out there, there's plenty more. It's NorbertPutnam.com, N-O-R-B-E-R-T, NorbertPutnam.com. The book is called Music Lessons. It's volume one. There's lots more stories, I'm sure. There's mm -hmm. going to be a volume two, I guess. I'm, I'm working on volume two now. <laughs> and nice. by, the way, the, by the way, the book is on Amazon for those of you. Uh, who can't wait and you want free shipping. <laughs> now, if you go to NorbertPutnam.com, we've got some signed first edition books. I think we've got about a thousand left, you know. Uh, 
but, but you know, my life today, I'm, I'm now doing a lot of corporate events where I speak after dinner about my career. I spoke to 100 Warner Brothers employees in Nashville last week because they were all under the age of 30. And the president of Warner, one of the presidents of Warner Brothers, my friend Pete Ganvark, and Pete has this thing called uh, the history of rock and roll music. So he had me come in to speak to these young people. I, I said, Pete, they won't even know some of my music is so old. Are you kidding? The night they drove old Dixie down. At the end of my talk, I, I was mobbed by these 27-year-old kids, and they all got a copy of my book. So I guess music doesn't really change, does it? It's still the same old story, a fight for love and glory, a case of do or die. You know, We're still writing love songs, aren't we? Yeah. So. <laughs> well, for my last question, it's very, yeah. very open-ended. We just don't know who is listening. All different ages. There's no borders anymore with communication. It can go uh -huh. anywhere. So for anyone who's listening, wherever they might be, what would you say to them? Well, to the ones who are, are thinking about becoming an artist, a writer, a musician, you know, it's changed drastically. Back in the 70s, a writer could make a lot of money by writing a song that Elvis would record. Because half of the earnings would be from radio broadcast, airplay. Okay. If you had 1,500 stations in America playing your song, you could make, that would be 50% of what you would make. The other half would be on the mechanical cells in those days of, uh, of the vinyl disc, okay, and the cassettes. But now, you know, we've got streaming with Spotify and Apple Music and, uh, and Amazon Music and, um, and, the writers haven't been able to take part in the negotiations for the fees, and they're really small. You know. So today's artist pretty much uh, makes most of his money touring. I think if you were to talk to uh, Beyonce, if you talk to the Eagles, any Jimmy Buffett, you know Jimmy's still selling out every night. So it's it's a it's a it's kind of a different world now. We're not all sure where, where it will go, but we think it will change. And, and the writer and the artist will start to get a bigger slice of the pie in the next few years. Because uh, we can't stop music. It's the other language, isn't it? And, you know, it's, it's the only language that can cross borders. Over, six years ago, I started to tour with the Elvis big screen show. And it's, it's just film of Elvis in 1970. But we had the 40-piece orchestra that he had in Las Vegas and some of the original players, James Burton, uh, Ron Tutt, Glenn D. Harden. I was filling in for Jerry Chef because he was having some hearing problems. But uh, I was amazed. We went down to Sao Paulo, Brazil. We played a 12,000-seat auditorium. And by the way, this is footage of Elvis that everyone's seen for years and years. We sold it out four nights in a row, 12,000 seats. And the ticket prices started at $300 a ticket. And when we toured Europe, we played all the major capitals. We would sell it out every night. And the amazing thing was, I expected the older people, the people in their 50s, 60s up, to know this music. But one night we played Belfast. And I came back to the hotel, and the band would always sneak up through the back elevator to their room so they wouldn't be mobbed by the fans. Well, I'm the new kid on the block, so I went straight to the bar. And, and so they started mobbing me, and I was signing autographs. And I looked over, and there was a young couple at the bar. 
And I wanted to go speak to them. And I got over there. And I said, well, I said, did you guys come to the concert? They looked to be mid-20s. Oh, yeah. Really enjoyed the concert. I said, you came to see Elvis Presley? Yeah. I said, why? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and they said, well, he's great. I said, but in America, there wouldn't, you couldn't find anybody in their 20s who would come to see a film of Elvis singing with a band. And I said, uh, can you tell me more? I said, I, so I'm thinking they never get out of the house, right? I said, well, did you see any other great concerts this year? Oh, we just saw Bruce Springsteen. Oh, I said, well, how would you rate seeing Bruce live to seeing Elvis on film? I was so shocked. They said, Elvis was better. <laughs> I said, but, but Bruce, they said, but you know where we were sitting, I held my fingers up and Bruce was only one inch tall. We were so far away from him. But they said, you know, we watched Bruce on the big screen and we watched Elvis on the big screen. And that was the common denominator. You know, even though Bruce was blown up, Elvis was blown up, they sort of bought into the reality that he might be there. Hmm. So that sort of changed my whole attitude about young people. And, <laughs> and I want to tell you, more and more young people I'm meeting now, I'll speak to the class here at University of North Alabama tomorrow. I tell these stories, and they, they found them very compelling. You know? and, and they all want a copy of my book. You know? So I, I feel blessed that I was able to participate during that time with all those great artists who could really do it. You know? And uh, Paul. Thank you for having me on your radio show. It was an honor. Thank you very much. Well, I'll come back anytime you need me, okay? Well, I might take you up on that, definitely. You, know, you realize you and I could probably do 10 hours, and we still wouldn't cover everything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> well, in that case, until next time. All right, Paul. <laughs> anytime, okay? All right. It was Just a pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye-bye, Paul. Bye-bye. <laughs>